I'm Eric Chemi, and this is Politely Pushy. Welcome to the show. Today, my guest is Dr. Colin Bannis. He's an internal medicine hospitalist and chief medical officer at Dr. First, where his interests center on the role of big data and analytics on patient outcomes and on novel forms of clinical decision support. Dr. First has been a pioneer in healthcare technology solutions for over 10 years, offering a suite of services known as the Healthiverse that securely connects people at touch points of care to improve patient outcomes. So Dr. Bannis, do I need to call you Dr. Bannis or is Colin okay? Because I think you're the first doctor we've had on the show. Oh, not at all. Colin is, is completely fine. How do they refer to you in the office? Both. Uh, but usually when people do say doctor, uh, I say, please call me Colin. So uh, I'm whittling it down. Because I'm at the age now where the doctors are like my age, right? So <laughs> as a kid, they were always much older than me. Now I'm at the age where, yeah, doctors are my age, maybe if not younger. And, and you see them because they live in the neighborhood and they, you know, you play tennis with them. So it's awkward for me, even when they're like my peer, to not call them by Dr. So-and-so. Yeah, it, I, I don't put on any airs. Uh, uh, it, we're all friends at the office and we're friends now. So Colin is totally fine. So, so tell me, how does, a, I mean, I guess it's not that hard. How does the doctor get a job at a health tech company? But but usually these health tech companies, it's like 90% tech engineers, developers, programmers, you know, the technical guys. And there's always a couple of doctors floating around. Is that is that similar at Doctor First? Uh, you know, as, as far as doctors go, we have a few. But as far as clinicians, we have many. So, um, you know, the first thing I thought of was, you know, how does a doctor get into this role? Uh, I fell into it. I fell into it about 20 years ago, uh, working at an academic health system that had implemented a large electronic medical record. And lo and behold, they needed uh, clinical input on some of the design decisions and changes. And there wasn't really any architecture for that. And so that's really where the field of informatics was born, uh, was out of this notion that cl clinicians needed to have a say into how these solutions are used and architected and implemented. So um, Dr. First is a progressive company. Actually, it's 20 years uh, in the making, actually um, uh, founded in the year 2000, but we do have a number of pharmacists, nurses, social workers, uh, even physical therapists, et cetera, in addition to a few doctors that are on the team. And so that really helps drive to a better solution, better adoption, because the idea of an informaticist is someone who can translate the clinical into technical and vice versa. So it's really a bridging role. Uh, and I'm, I, I'm so thrilled that I fell into this role and that I've been able to join such a fantastic company like Dr. First. So who is the customer, right? So healthcare technology, are you selling to hospitals? Are you selling to just the regular doctor's office, the normal one I go to in my town? Are you selling to the government? There, there are so many stakeholders, there's so many entities involved here. So what is the business model for Dr. Yeah, it, it's all of the above. So Dr. First actually has its roots in e-prescribing. So if you go all the way back to the year 2000, before e-prescribing was even a thing, you know, so back in 2000, we're still doing paper charts. We're still writing paper prescriptions. We're still faxing, although I could argue that we're still faxing today, which is a travesty and something that we're working on at Dr. First. But well, we're still doing paper today. We're still doing a lot, a lot of it. A lot of it's good, but yeah. a lot of it is the exact same as it was 20 years ago. I agree. And a lot of times we've overlaid a digital solution onto a paper process, which is 
really defeats the purpose. It, it can actually make it worse. But um, as an e-prescribing vendor, we were selling to um, small offices. We were uh, becoming the engine for some of the larger EMRs to route their prescriptions. But over time, what started as an e-prescribing company actually blossomed into what you uh, were referring to before, the healthy verse. And it's a suite of innovative solutions that really uh, center on patient safety, uh, efficiency, satisfaction, and, and, and even communication. And so uh, it started as e-prescribing uh, and now there's a, a whole portfolio of solutions and we provide these solutions to any any and all of those entities that, that you were referring to before. The healthy verse. I said health verse because I wasn't sure if it was like universe, universe. I, I didn't pronounce it perfectly, but but what does that mean, the healthy verse, right? Because yeah. you know, the metaverse, yeah. what's the healthy verse? Yeah, we actually, even before the metaverse, we had uh, coined that term, the healthy verse. And, and the easiest way to explain it is the universe of healthcare is complex. Uh, it's complicated. And we're trying at Dr. First to unite all of the various touch points while keeping the patient in the center. So you'll see uh, the tagline, Unite the Healthy Verse. It really is this idea of uh, combining our solutions across all of the entities in the healthcare space, whether it's payer, provider, uh, of course, keeping the patient in the center, even pharmacies, and then also. Uh, all of the other clinicians that get involved as well. And so, again, you imagine this uh, patient at the center and all of these touch points, we want our solutions to uh, make all of that communication and data transfer seamless uh, and interoperable across all of the entities. So what is your job as, as a doctor there on staff? Is it to be a salesperson, connect them to big hospital chains, big, you know, PBMs, whoever it may be. Is, is it the job of, hey, I speak their language, I can talk to them? Or is the job more internal? Hey, let me make sure that what you're doing makes sense from a provider's point of view. Yeah, it's both. Uh, I think the fun part is the innovation. Uh, and that's where I get to sit with the, the technical team, do that translation role, tell them, you know, how these things would work in real clinical practice you know, put this button there. Oh, it, it should do this, that sort of thing. That's the fun stuff. But there's a portion of the role that is, um, you know, I need to be the representative physician uh, speaking on behalf of the company. So some of it is sales, uh, not too much. Some of it is uh, getting to speak at industry events. Uh, so upcoming uh, at Amdis, which is a, a sort of a CMIO community that I've been a member of for many years. I'm giving a talk out there. And so things like that are fun as well. So I wear multiple hats for the company, not just sales, not just uh, innovation, sort of all of the above. You mentioned e-prescribing. It's been going on now for about 20 years, but I think it's really started to take steam, especially during the pandemic. But we're seeing a lot of news stories these days of certain companies, tech startups, maybe over-prescribing, maybe being very aggressive with, hey, we got to just keep churning out these prescriptions because the business model is, is unique, right? That insurance companies are typically paying more so than the patient is paying. So there's different incentive than a normal, a normal store, let's say. So what are you seeing trend-wise all of a sudden in this past couple of years do you feel like it's it's gone too far, perhaps, with maybe the ease at which certain drugs might be able to be gotten electronically? No, yes and no. I, I, I guess that's a sort of a, a twofold answer. But 
You know, so one of the things that we do have the benefit of is, is data. Uh, we have a lot of data. We can analyze trends. We can see where the industry is headed, uh, maybe even make some predictions. And so undoubtedly during the pandemic, we saw uh, antidepressant prescriptions go up. We saw inhalers uh, go up. Uh, as you can imagine, a lot of people um, early on thought the benefit of, of certain inhalers that you would use for uh, asthma, for example, could be a benefit during COVID. Uh, and we even saw some opioid prescriptions um, go up because some of the restrictions and burdens about prescribing controlled substances were eased off during the pandemic because you know you couldn't go to the office, you couldn't see folks in person. And so there were some, you know, there's always a few bad actors that can sort of bring down, bring us all down as providers, if you will. But I think um, the way we monitor as a company, the way the industry monitors, uh, we're, we're catching the bad apples and, and we're, we're bringing that to the light and then we're making appropriate changes. I want to get into, I want to get into some other Dr. First questions in a bit, but I just, just while I have you on this topic, all the debate about COVID over the last couple of years, right? Masks, no masks, vaccines, no vaccines, social distancing, not keep schools open or not like all the debates you, you are more informed than I am because you are an experienced doctor, you're working at a healthcare technology firm. What is your point of view on the pros, the cons, the balances, the compromises? You know, at what cost that we as a society have gone for all of these things? Was it a big enough cost? Was it was it not enough of a cost? What's your perspective on the balance that we tried to strike as a country here? I think it was an incredibly difficult line to traverse. Uh, and so as a, as a physician and as, uh, as a scientist, my motto was always to follow the science. And I realized that sometimes the science changed and sometimes the science uh, wasn't exact, but I think we as a country did the best we could. Uh, I do think there will be consequences uh, downstream. I have two small children. I know they essentially missed uh, a year of in-person learning uh, at a young age, which I think is is super important. So there's catch up to be, uh, to be made for, for a lot of these things. But I'm not sure we had much of a choice based on um, how the pandemic was was ebbing and flowing. And so uh, it, it would be way too uh, convenient to armchair quarterback this thing. But, you know, in the thick of it, the best advice was to follow the science and, and to stay uh, very attuned to all of the things that were going on. So going back to Dr. First. On your website, there's a lot of mentions of artificial intelligence, right? Every health tech company talks about AI. That's a big buzzword. It's been buzzy for years now. It's almost the point now. It's a, it's like a standard operating term. It's not even buzzy. It's like a necessary requirement to do your business. From your perspective, what does AI even mean to you now in terms of what you're doing and and how do you get past? What does that even mean to anybody anymore? Yeah, it's it, it's definitely lost its punch. Um, and I think it gets thrown around too often. I think it gets thrown around in instances where it's not even truly quote unquote artificial intelligence. It, it may be something as simple as what we would call an algorithm before we needed to call everything AI. I will say um, personally, I hate the term artificial intelligence. And so when I say AI, I'll usually change it to augmented intelligence because I think what we've seen now is that the true AI solutions that we deploy in healthcare are never going to be a replacement for a, a clinician or a healthcare provider, but they can certainly, and we can prove it, they can augment uh, the workflow. They can make them more efficient. 
they can make them safer. But do I think some AI uh, algorithm that can read x-rays is going to replace the radiologist? No. But do I think that same algorithm can prioritize the work queue based on pattern recognition and say, oh, go look at these 10 x-rays first because there's something concerning here and then intervene faster? Absolutely. I mean, that's been proven. And so um, it, it is getting played out. If you, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Gartner hype cycle, if you've ever heard of that. Uh, yeah. Of it, yep. Yeah, and so I think we we got all the way to the peak, and now we're a little bit past what what Gartner would call the trough of disillusionment because we're actually seeing some real world applications, and none of them are nearly as high as as the expectations for the. Remember, Watson was going to cure cancer, uh, and now Watson is no more, and the data has been sold off uh, in order to at least further the AI mission. Because they, I remember, you probably remember better, Watson had a deal with a major hospital and I think it was kind of a debacle and it was like, never mind, can we return this back to you? We don't, we don't want this here anymore. Yeah, it's hundreds of millions of dollars. And but you know, they, this is one of the things that I also like to talk about when I talk about uh, augmented intelligence is that there are, there are versions of AI that are, they, they all don't have to be a swing for the fences. In other words, you don't have to have AI solve sepsis or cure cancer. You can have AI automating some of the repetitive and mundane that has uh, still um, percolated into the healthcare workflow. And just by automating some of those things with uh, thoughtful oversight uh, from the algorithms and, and continual learning, I think that's another tenant of AI is that it needs to continue to learn. Um, you can make huge impacts in clinician workflow, clinician satisfaction, and most importantly, patient outcomes and safety. Do you think that you've had this job and that you've been in the tech side of it, you're seeing what's involved, does it give you more confidence in our future or less? Because you, I, my, my point is this, now that you're in the tech, you're maybe saying like the example you give, maybe it's very narrow. Maybe a lot of the changes that are going to happen in the future are smaller than we expected. Has this job in a way reduced your expectations, reduced your optimism for what will be possible in your kid's lifetime? Maybe the problem, now that you're part of tackling the problem from the texture, maybe the problem is bigger than anyone could imagine until they get there. No, I, I think, I think our prior, um, expectations were overinflated, uh, again, back to that Gartner hype cycle. And I think now that, so before joining Dr. First uh, over three years ago, I was the CMIO for uh, an academic health system. So I was on the other side of the fence. I was, uh, again, as I mentioned before, implementing these technologies and, and driving EMR adoption. Now that I'm on the, uh, the, the tech side, if you will, um, the way that, that we focus it um, at Dr. First is actually focus. Um, we're focused on the things that we know we can impact um, with the data and with the assets that we have now. And then from there, we're going to continue to grow and learn and think of the next round of solutions uh, to implement. So I'm not jaded. I, I think that was at the sort of the undertone uh, of your question is, am I jaded by AI? No, I, I'm, I'm hopefully excited. Or less jaded, more like do you realize the enormity of the problem or, or it, 
I don't mean it's like I want to be wrong. I want I want to ask the question. I want you to tell me that I'm wrong. I'm hoping that I'm wrong. I'm I'm hoping that you'll say, look, now that I'm in it and I'm part of this tech solution and I see exactly what it takes, you have a better sense for here's what the next 10 years is going to look like. Here's what the next 20 is going to look like. We'll be able to do X, but we won't be able to do Y. So I'm curious how your education has changed being part of it on the inside. Yeah. So so the 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 quick answer is healthcare is way more complex than any of the health tech companies, I think, initially um, conceived. And so I think that's why you saw fits and starts with the IBMs and the Watsons. And, you know, now there are tech companies starting to get momentum in the space, whether it's automation firms, whether it's even big data uh, type companies like Oracle or Google. Um, but I think, the way to think of it is healthcare is probably 15 to 20 years behind some of the uh, analytics and, and AI that you've seen in other industries, whether it's Amazon and retail or whether it's banking or aviation. So if you think back to where, you know, your Amazon experience was 20 years ago, it, it wasn't really there. Uh, they might've been a book company back then, but I think within the next 10 to 20 years, as we're picking up uh, momentum, you're going to start to see similar experiences uh, that we had in those other sectors. What about the idea that tech is taking over healthcare too much? So, so when someone comes in to see their doctor, see the nurse, it's a lot of staring away at the computer, right? No one's really looking at you. There's no eye contact. It's just, it's just you talking to someone, typing something into a computer. And, and, and you hear those complaints. I'm sure you hear more than me that, hey, no one's even talking to me anymore. They're just typing into a computer. What is what is the point? Why am I even coming here for this? Yeah, so th this is a beautiful use case uh, for AI. So um, I think what you're referring to is what we a lot of, a lot of times call the, the unintended consequences of digitization, whether it's uh, too much screen time and not enough patient interaction, whether it's uh, clinicians who have to take their work home because they can't complete their charting uh, while they're in regular office hours. And so they're, uh, we affectionately call that pajama time. You're sort of dipping into your time with your kids in order to finish your documentation or your charting. And this is where the promise of AI and automation uh, can really um, shine. So if you think about things like ambient listening, uh, so think of your, your home devices. Um, if I say if I say her name, the one in my kitchen is going to actually respond. So Ambient I, I, listening always scares me because everyone jokes, you know, like, is it your phone listening to you? Because we'll talk about something and then you see an ad on your phone for that thing. You're like, wait a minute. I, yeah. I didn't wait. What's going on? <laughs> well, in the healthcare setting, it's going to, it's going to uh, benefit your provider and benefit you because there's literally technology now that can listen to our, our visits, discern my voice from yours write the note or document all of the things that need, you know, it's using natural language processing uh, and things of that sort. And now my, my documentation time, the, the amount of time I need to be uh, in the, the laptop, if you will, is, is reduced to, you know, almost nothing. And now I can spend all my time on you. Uh, you know, telehealth during COVID, I mean, that was the only option for a period of time. You, you, there were, doctor's offices were closed. Um, and people were afraid, even if they were open, to go into the waiting room. And so we saw this explosion in the technology of, of telehealth um, during COVID. And, and I, I don't know that we would have been able to get through it without those sorts of technological advancements. And of course, now we've got that momentum and we're going to run with it. 
and do even more with uh, remote monitoring, with with wearables, with things like that. And so, do I think technology is is taking over healthcare? No, I think the bureaucracy of some of the self-imposed things that we've done in healthcare, combined with digital uh, solutions that were layered on top of paper, as I mentioned before, sort of uh, you know hit us for a doozy until we really got our bearings and said. We don't need to do it like that anymore. We can start to do it different. So, and maybe you can't share this, but what is the typical cost of this type of solution? I, I don't know, like even the scale, is this like a, you know, a million dollars, a hundred million dollars? If somebody says, I want to get doctor first, I guess it depends if this is a small, you know, like a one person doctor's office, or this is a big regional chain or a big hospital. But like, give me a sense of the scale, the business side of how much it costs them, who's really paying and and their their the capitalism model of like okay if we buy this what are they going to get for it right what's the benefit of it and if they don't buy it what are they losing is it is it competition do patients go elsewhere is it hard for them to hire what's the reason for them to buy this from yeah, a, a money-forward point of view yeah and you have to remember it really is a whole portfolio of solutions so depending on your need it can change so we have a mobile prescribing platform for example called iPrescribe actually. Massive adoption during COVID because people needed to send prescriptions via their phone and they weren't in their office, et cetera. Um, you know, that's a that's a, a pretty simple subscription model, and that is not expensive at all. Um, all the way up to an enterprise implementation of either our e-prescribing platform or some of our medication management solutions. And those typically can get priced uh, by the number of beds in your hospital, for example. But, you know, None of the things that, that we're talking about are these massive break the bank um, investments, if you will. Um, the, the solutions that I, that I like to talk about the most in terms of the automation solutions, those are really meant to be small, easy implementations with immediate impact uh, once we flip that switch to on. Buzzwords, jargon. We mentioned it a little bit. AI. I know you've got a point of view on not using too many of them, right? When you're having these conversations, when you're working with the, your, I say customers, but these healthcare providers and their patients, how does Doctor First as a company, how do you as a representative, how do you not use that many jargon buzzwords and not reference things like AI, right? Or interoperability is a word yeah. that I hear a lot, patient engagement. I'm not really sure what that means exactly. Pop. How do you get away from that? It's hard. It's really hard because- <laughs> not, That's not the answer I was looking for. <laughs> well, you know, and so I, I try to be very deliberate. Uh, so instead of AI, I'll try to say augmented or advanced. Um, you know, pop or pop health or population health. Um, you, you can't get away with it, but you can start to- the, the problem with those buzzwords is that people tune out. They either, uh, they grow numb to them or they you know, they discredit it because everybody has an AI solution or everybody has a pop health play. And so I try to be very deliberate in describing uh, the solutions and more importantly, describing the impacts. I think anything that we will talk about in terms of our solution suite can always back it up with actual real world examples and data. And so, you know, Maybe I'm talking about pop health, but I'll say, you know, this is how you manage your cohorts of patients. This is how you can manage your chronically ill. You know, you got to personalize it a little bit 
And you, you got to find other words to convey the same meaning because, like I said, uh, they might become numb to those. What's your biggest hurdle right now in terms of getting your story out there, getting your messaging, your narrative out there for, for people that you need to understand what you do? What's the hurdle in terms of getting them to understand exactly what it is you do, what the company I, does? I think the biggest hurdle and, and one of the things that I'm so um, honored to be a part of with the company is getting uh, shouting from the rooftops are real world successes. And so I actually uh, have the honor of leading our applied clinical research uh, division. And that is literally going to existing uh, partners that we have and saying, look, we've implemented, you know, X, Y, and Z solution. Will you share your data showing the impact, whether it's happiness, whether it's efficiency, whether it's being able to get a return on investment or my favorite, did we make you safer? And we finally now have partners that are, are really wanting to open, uh, you know, open the kimono, if you will, and share that data. And then um, my team and I have the, have the pleasure of actually publishing uh, these things. And so we have three papers right now, right now in peer review. And so the more real world examples, the more momentum that we can get as a company talking about our solutions and the real world impact, I think I think that's when we're really uh, set for you know skyrocket growth. So it's a really excited time for the company. I love it, Dr. Bennis. Thanks so much for joining me today. This has been a great show. Thanks. I, I appreciate your insights. Really interesting conversation. Thank you. Oh, it was, it was a pleasure. I'll do this anytime. Thank you to my guest, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to get the latest episodes each week, and we'll see you next time.